Everybody, coming to you from Los Angeles, the Consumer Price Index numbers released today in, uh, reflecting a 7.5% increase in consumer prices from January 2021 to January 2022. This is a 40-year high. And this, as you can imagine, is going to severely impact the consumer purchases, the products you buy, and, and the types of decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis, everybody out there. And nobody is more knowledgeable uh, and more of an expert on these topics than my, my guest today, Edward Hertzman. He is the CEO and founder of The Source. Journal. It is the leading industry publication and trade publication on sourcing and supply chain, primarily in the apparel and textiles industry, but certainly, you know, with the purview to, toward to supply chain, you know, across the, the consumer and B2B world. Uh, Edward, thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure uh, to be here. Thanks, Matt. No problem. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how the Sourcing Journal came about and, and what its focus is. Sure. Um, my background is actually not media. It is supply chain and sourcing for about 10, 15 years. I, I spent time working for agencies. Um, you can call them buying house and agencies, virtual manufacturers. And I also worked for factories directly um, from anywhere from the big fast fashion retailers in Europe to the 7th Avenue um, wholesalers in, in New York. I, I was the guy that when you needed to place uh, 50,000 units of X, I would go overseas. I'd find the fabric. I'd find the factories. And I'd make sure that those goods showed up to your warehouse uh, in, in New York or LA. Um, in 2010, we were, we were dealing with a massive, uh, cotton crisis prices uh, increased by the day. And I found it very diff- difficult to articulate this to a lot of my customers. And I just became increasingly very frustrated. And I was like, how come there is no publication? How come there is no wall street journal or Bloomberg for the supply chain? So I literally started this newsletter started sending it out to a handful of business cards I had. Next thing you know, I had 20, 30,000 30, people signed up, started writing proprietary content, boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, I'm like, I have a real business opportunity here. Um, in 2017, I sold the business to Jay Penske of PMC, you know, owners of Variety, WWD, Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, Rolling Stone. And since then, it was a, a perfect storm between the credibility they brought to the business, the resources I've been able to add, and just, you know, hate to say it, now the supply chain is front page, uh, mainstream media, uh, you know, uh, content. So, you know, we were in the business before it was sexy. We're in the business now when it's topical, we'll be in the business after. And all those things uh, combined has made this a very interesting few years. No doubt, no doubt. And with the supply chain being truly global in, in nature, and then uh, with the world experiencing its first global pandemic in about a century, this is obviously very disruptive, as, as you mentioned. Um, a bad signal for the quality of the supply chain, but a good signal for discussion and discourse around it because it's obviously a topic of interest. So, and we, we for, you and I foresaw this because we spoke back in May 2020. Um, that was the third month of pure, true lockdown, meaning everyone stays in their house in just about mm-hmm. the entire United States and, and Western world and most of the entire world. And at that point, you know, we were, we were, tr- we were trying to forecast. We were trying to be forward looking about what this pandemic was going to bring in terms of um, consumer, consumer goods and supply supply chain disruption. And so you were definitely sounding the alarm. Um, and, you know, your your view now is that, you know, a lot of, of your predictions have been proven out. Some people uh, have kind of have 
gravitated towards your views. Some of the issues were solved and addressed, but not many of them. If you could give us a little summary of you know your view at that time and and to the extent that, that your forecast there came true and, and who was to blame for some of the issues or, or who at least tried to implement solutions that may or may not may have had differing, you know, degrees of of usefulness. You know, when we spoke, Matt, it, it, as you as you said, it was very early on in the pandemic. And it's not that I had a crystal ball, per se, but I remember I remember coming back from a trade show in Vegas where all of the international manufacturers were virtually invisible. And I remember being in an office and, and, and telling some 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 of my colleagues in California, uh, I think something bad's about to happen. You know, Foxconn is shut down. Apple has cut its forecast. Um, and everyone's like, no, 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 no. And then when we started to go into lockdown, everyone's like, don't worry, this is going to be over in a couple of days. I said, cancel every event contract, get out of everything. You have no idea what's about to happen. I said, Noah built the ark before the storm and it hasn't even started raining yet. And everyone thought I was nuts. People said, I remember that one of the Cipriani's, they said, if you're right, we'll be out of business. I said, not only won't there be an event in 2020, there won't be an event in 2021. And I mm-hmm. hope we could do it in 2022. Two, it wasn't that I wanted to be to be right. I just saw that there, there was this was going to be a long, a long time. It's going to take a long time to fix this. And then I said, this is going to be the biggest HR nightmare in history. And as we're seeing returning people to work, everyone's now working at different places. I mean, there's, there's the complexities uh, of this um, is is quite great. What I wish people understood is because I had better foresight into this. It's not that I was able to plan a little bit different. And therefore, the impact of this on for, for myself and my business was a little less severe. Mm-hmm. I think people that were just hoping that, oh, it was two weeks or three weeks or four weeks yeah. or whatever, or two months. Those are the people that were, you know, unfortunately, you know, were sideswiped a little bit more. But there have been people, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this today, that have been great benefactors of, of COVID. And I'm not talking about the Zooms of the world. I'm talking about the shipping companies. I'm talking about even some retailers um, had their best year ever in 2021 or best years in, 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 in decades. They were the, the most profitable they've been in quite some time. And the question is, why is that? Mm-hmm. And my, my, my opinion is it's fool's gold. Okay. I don't really think from a fundamental strategy or like operational perspective, they changed very much in how they operate their business. I think there were a few variables that came to play. People had extra cash, you know, they had all the stimulus money flowing through the economy. Mm-hmm. People had pent up demand. People were sitting home from a long period of time, so so they were saving in general. Mm-hmm. And then retailers struggled to get inventory in, or they didn't buy a lot of inventory. So when consumers finally went back to the store, they didn't have a lot to choose from. So what that meant was for the first time ever, Retailers didn't have to mark down things. Mm-hmm. And people started selling through at a higher price point. So now you have customers flush with cash, buying these at, at a higher price point. What does this mean? Retailers have more margin and they don't have excess inventory to mark down. All that, that, that just equals a great year for everybody. But what people don't like to highlight is that in 2020, a lot of the retail community got a free pass. They got to close down underperforming stores. Mm-hmm. They got to furlough employees. They got to get out of under you know leases that were underperforming. They cut 
orders or didn't, you know, canceled orders and didn't pay the, at the factories. They did all of these things that under normal times, they would have been under increased scrutiny and, and blasted. But since so many people did this, it was okay. And I'm not here to be a judge or a jury. I think a way a lot of retailers treated their upstream factory partners is irresponsible. It's short term. And it also left a lot of those factory workers and factories, you know, out to struggle. Uh, I could understand the last man in the right uh, in the lifeboat, you know, mentality. But as we see now more than ever, how viable and, and, and important that factory relationship is. But having said all that, Matt, it, it was a combination of making those 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 choices in 2020 that would have been really hard to do if if everyone wasn't doing it and they were covered by or protected by the the optics of that of COVID. And then in 2021, those variables. Now everyone thinks they have figured out this retail, uh, you know, formula. I, mm-hmm. I think it's it, it's a matter of time before the pendulum swings, and when it does swing, it's going to look very, uh, <laughs> very troubling. And, and so, would you say that some of that was pulling demand forward? Either it seems like it's it's two pronged. One, pulling demand forward that people that consumers started to make buying decisions sooner than they otherwise would have. Number one, and number two, that having to kind of take themselves out of social circulation. They spent more money on goods. Uh, they shifted more of their personal budget from services to goods. Oh, without question. You know, when travel is limited or non-existent, mm, yeah, restaurant, yeah. Uh, people are going to restaurant, restaurants or they're not really going at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are certain sectors, as I said, you look at home. Yeah. Um, everyone was, was renovating their home offices, people buying couches, people, you know, redoing, you know, uh, their kitchens or this. I mean, they, the, the cost of raw materials went up. The cost of, of the home products went up. You can't get it. I mean, people yeah. are still waiting months and months for couches. But but look at, you know, how many times you're going to buy a, a desk chair and, and, a, and, a, and redo your home office? How mm-hmm. many Pelotons are you going to buy? And how many times are you going to redo your living room? So I'm still bullish on the home market. I think it's a good category to be in. But I think we're going to see a softness. We're not going to see that massive growth that we're going to continue to see. The concern is people are still waiting for their purchases in 2021. Mm-hmm. If these retailers are buying like this, they're still going to have the growth in 2022 like they did in 2021. And this could be said for even the, the you know, the, the retail, the, the fashion category. That is where I'm really, really concerned. And there was an article um, earlier this week from the CEO of Flexport. Yeah, and, and he said something very similar to this. And, and he's concerned that as to your point, as, as we see a shift, of consumption to experiences again but also we have to remember it's taking longer for goods to arrive yep and people are placing bets for the most part three months six months out so if if it takes six months you it's very hard for us to know what's going to happen tomorrow let alone six months from now and if Mm -hmm. the six months becomes seven months or eight months because of delays in shipping if demand softens or really to you know and why is it going to soften? You look at the inflation number you said today. When you start taking that into ordinary purchases, you know, milk goes up, gas goes up, you know, ordinary just consumer products that we need to buy, how does that affect the discretionary spending? Mm-hmm. And then we say people want to start doing other things with their life. I think there could be a massive slowdown in the in, in the fashion category. Mm-hmm. Take luxury and- out. I'm talking about middle America where most people shop. 
So, and I just want to dig into that inventory management issue just a little bit more for a second. So, as you mentioned, Ryan Peterson of Flexport, who we'll get to in a second because he's kind of become one of the uh, notable voices on these issues due to a very interesting little little uh, incident that happened last year. But what he mentioned on the All In podcast actually is that the the um, the the average time from pickup request to delivery of a product, which is typically around fifty days, which is longer than you know we we imagine, but that's pretty long. It's gone from 50 days to 115 days. So from the time that a, a factory mentions, hey, this product is available for pickup till the time that it gets delivered somewhere where it is, you know, can be offloaded and be taken to consumers, it's now 115 days. And that makes things incredibly complicated for retailers in terms of their inventory management. Maybe if you can get an, a little bit more into the details of that. Yeah, so if there's one thing we learned during COVID, and it's, it's amazing, that it took a pandemic for anyone for us to really understand this because it, there's so many case studies. Um, I mean, we, we've been studying Zara now for how long is mm-hmm. that so much of, of working capital and risk is tied up in inventory. And so much of that is because we take our money and we plan and project inventory six months out. If we are able to be lean and agile and book closer to need. So for example, you book less, you, you get it into the stores quicker, if it works at a higher margin, right? We replenish and get it back in. But if it doesn't work, we mark it down and get rid of it. But our liability is very small. Very hard for me to say six six months from now if this polka dot shirt's gonna be in. Mm-hmm. I air in 10,000 pieces, it blows out, boom. Maybe I then wanna move it to a longer lead time country, buy more units, boat it in. But companies like Zara or Shein, Shein is making fast fashion look slow. Wow. And I don't want to talk about whether I think what they're doing is right or wrong or blah, 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 blah. They're in the headline. They're, they're, in, they're, in, the, they're in the news for a lot of different reasons. But the fundamentals of their business is very interesting. It's, it's a search engine optimization and, and data science company with a really robust supply chain behind them. And it's basically they're, they're, they're able to almost buy their product exactly when they know the customer wants it. And they u- utilize... The minimus, and, and for people that, that don't know what that is, is you're able to ship something directly from the factory if it's under $800 into the country mm-hmm. and not pay duty on it. Now, the, the owners of this, they're really not in, in the public eye very much. I think they want to keep a low profile, and, and what I'm about to tell you, you'll understand why. It's about a $10 billion company that blows people away. About $4 billion of that is in America. Now, if, if we take a weighted average of 17% for cotton and 33% for synthetic duty, Let's just call it 25%. You ship $4 billion into this country. How much money did you just save in duty, Matt? Mm-hmm. $1 billion. Yeah. And that's a huge advantage. They're not marking down a lot of inventory. So go to Sheehan's app, which I think is one of the top 10 most downloaded apps in general. And you're going to see shirts for $4.99, $5.99, $6.99. I don't even know how it's mathematically possible. But it's for these variables that I'm telling you that they're able to compete with people. But again, it's, it's supply chain, supply chain. It's limiting the risk. They're taking risk out of the supply chain by being super fast. And so those who aren't super fast, those who are on the, the receiving end of some of these delays, these kind of mid, mid-level mid uh, fast fashion brands or, or direct-to-consumer brands, quote-unquote fast fashion brands or direct-to-consumer brands, what's ahead for them with this supply chain and inventory mismanagement? So look, it, it, it's not I think we can no longer speak in generalities, um, especially when we're talking about the retail and, and fashion, because not all brands are 
subject to the same consumer appetite. So for example, if I'm a denim manufacturer or a fleece manufacturer, or if I'm Nike, I'm much better positioned than if I'm making dress shirts. You know, you and I are sitting here right now. We're not in a suit and top. So we can have the most robust, greatest minds working at our suit company. And we're probably going to be have a little bit of a difficult go at this until we're all back in, in, in the workforce, in an office. And even then, the, the, we've kind of become very casual in how we dress going to work. But I would say that those that learned the value of having being lean and being responsive are going are going to have a better shot at this moving forward, especially as the dust hasn't really settled. We really don't know what the world's going to look like. For those that are overly confident, and there's a lot of them that are doing that, and they're not only buying like it's 2021, but the fact I've had so many factories call me and say, Eddie, how are people buying 30, 40% more than 2019? Where Who's consuming this? And they're afraid yep. because if they take the order and they get left with a cancellation, they're done. But if they don't take the order, they're also done. They don't have a business. So there is a lot of people out there that think, like I said earlier, that whatever they did in 2021 was, was a product of their genius strategy and genius, not taking into account all of these other variables we discussed. They're buying aggressively. They're buying way out. And if the pendulum swings, they're going to get stuck with a lot of inventory. Mm-hmm. They got to remember it's more expensive inventory. Yeah. And they're going to mark it down. Their margin is going to just be, they won't have any more. So essentially what, what were the, the danger that we're identifying is brands that saw an increase in demand for a variety of factors that we described in 2020, 2021 um, are, are making buying decisions and inventory decisions based on those projections as if demand and in, in factors are going to stay consistent. But we can probably anticipate um, uh, uh, a, de- a decrease in demand because people are getting back out into the world. They're going to start shifting more of a personal budget towards services and experience travel. Hey, when you cut, you know, uh, you cut ten, fifteen thousand dollars at a travel for a family of four, 2020, 2021, you're going to shift that somewhere. And that's what led to the increases in the, the Peloton purchases and, improve, you know, uh, home furnishing improvements and things of that nature. Nature, and those are, for the most part, one-time purchases. And I think that that is absolutely, you know, a risk that we're going to uh, see for a lot of these companies. That uh, as, and we're going to get to it, this issue as a separate topic, but also a lot of direct to, con- to consumer retailers and companies that were already hanging on by a bit of a thread and maybe existing off a lot of buzz and revenue, but with tough margins and tough unit economics. And uh, some of uh, the ties are going to go out on them a little bit. Um, so let's go to this this infrastructure issue mm-hmm. um, and the port issue that Ryan Peterson of Flexport um, kind of brought to light to a lot of people. And this was fascinating. So October um, there in, in preparation for the holiday, the, the holiday retail season, um, the there's a big crisis at the port of Long Beach and San Pedro down here in Los, you know, in Southern California, because the, the port is breaking records for the most ships and the most containers stuck at the harbor that can't be offloaded. Like the, the, the port is just jammed. So Ryan Peterson of this logistics and delivery company, Flexport, decides, hey, I'm going to go rent a boat and with one of my partners and take it out on, on the water in Long Beach to see what's going on at the port. And what he saw and what he documented was pretty shocking that a kind of cascading impact of these ridiculous decisions about how the ports operated and infrastructure insufficient 
deficiencies was just setting off a chain reaction and and you know a domino effect that led to all these boats 500,000 containers just stuck in San Pedro and Long Beach unable to get off the ships and into the hands of retailers and consumers um things that essentially the one of the the major points of failure was that you couldn't stack container boxes at the port beyond a certain height right because hey residents in the neighborhood they don't want you know contain they don't want their view or their city to have containers stacked to the heavens so you had you you had a limit on how many containers you can stack so, okay if you have the content if there's only so many containers you can stack you can't you don't have enough chassis to go and then uh uh kind of transport all of those containers um, from from where they are, um, offload the containers and then stack new containers. And so that just created a chain reaction that left all of these other containers on the boats. So you at, so you're looking at that and you think, wait a second, why can't we solve this issue? Why can't we just release this control um, or this restriction for just a moment or two and and kind of release the bottleneck? And after it took Ryan Peterson going ahead and doing this and making it uh, uh, and bringing it, you know, and, and kind of making it newsworthy for the the mayor of San Pedro to engage on the topic. And he released the restriction for a minute or two. But that only broke up the bottleneck so much because, as, as it turns out, we were under resourced in other areas. Not enough trucks, not enough truckers, not enough chassis themselves. Um, and so if you could, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your view on that situation and how we the the supply chain. And, you know, even before COVID was kind of it, it w- had some breakage or had some potential breakage in that we, you know, it, insufficiently staffed and outdated infrastructure that when, you know, one outside one exogenic uh, force was input into the system just created chaos. You know, man, I think we could do a, a whole hour on yeah, probably do an hour on automobiles right now. Yeah, uh, I think this is, is is a rather complex conversation, and and I don't I think to just simplify, you know, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the ports. You know, they go mm. outside, they see all the boats out there, um, but you know, you started you started mentioning some of the issues. A when Biden announced a twenty four seven you know uh, work cycle at the ports, people people in the industry kind of laughed. Couldn't get workers during the regular shift. You're going to get yeah. workers to go the night shift. Yeah. That was an issue. Number two, you know, I don't have the most the most recent numbers. Maybe I should have been a little bit more prepared. But in Q4 around October, November, the last time I looked, there was a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers and 400,000 uh, warehouse workers. Mm-hmm. So getting the goods out of the port is just what, like you said, getting the goods off the ship is one thing. We have a problem once we get the goods, you know, X, X warehouse, if you will, or X, X, uh, X uh, port. The other thing that is, uh, it needs to be emphasized is China has a zero tolerance policy. Mm-hmm. So you have two or three cases in one of these major ports in China. They shut it down. A few weeks ago, I was reading that, you know, when Omicron was, 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 was spiking, whatever, they shut down a port in China. What ripple effect does that have on us? We already yep. have problems, you know, in the in, in all the major ports in this country, and even, and the, even be, the secondary ports. And just to be clear to everybody, this means the zero tolerance policy in China is that if they catch one case of COVID or two cases of COVID from workers at a dock, they shut down the entire port. And some of these ports are pretty damn significant. Well, let's also look at some some, some economics here. You know, you got a few firms. That, that make up the, the majority of the ocean carriers or, or the, the 
carrying this cargo, right? Mm-hmm. Maersk in 2021 went from making in 2020 they, their profit was about 3.3. This is called three. It changed billion. You know what it was in 2021? 18.7. In the fourth quarter alone, so we're talking about this heavy back to school holiday time period from 1.3 to 6.3 billion. You're talking container prices were four to five times X what it was in 2019. Now, how much you think they want they want this to change? They made more money in a year than they probably made in the past 10. And yes, there's ocean shipping reform acts. You know, people are trying to get legislation in play, but for the most part, they're forgetting that a lot of the congestion, even if these things pass, which I don't think they will. Uh, you know, I know the, Mar- the Federal Maritime Commission is trying to get involved and they're trying to work on price gouging or whatnot. But, you know, as you said, so much of the problem is happening on, on the land side. Mm-hmm. It's not just on the port side. So, again, if, if we've seen in the past few years an acceleration of uh, e-commerce purchases, let's just say it's increased by a third. You see a third more DHL trucks on the street. Do you see a third more people willing to work in warehouses? Do you see a third more warehouses? You know, I'm actually thinking every time I walk into my building in New York City, I say architects are going to have to redesign how they build buildings moving forward. We look like an Amazon uh, fulfillment center. Our beautiful lobby every day is filled (laughs) with packages. When they built that building 20 years ago, did they think about? Yeah. Yeah. Just think about that. I don't think I, I, I've yet to read a story on that. It'd be very interesting that fundamentally they're going to need to have someone sitting there receiving the packages, not the, not, not the concierge or the doorman. Mm. It, it looks ridiculous. So yeah. the other thing is there's another issue. The people that work on the ships, you know, there are people that work on these ships that have not seen land in over a year. Wow. Is that typical or was this only pandemic? No, it, it, it's, it's, it's typical for them to have extended stays at sea obviously they're they're manning the ships all the way from port to port so that could be months or they have a lot of times these are in developing countries these individuals obviously leave their families because they can make more money by going on on a boat but some of the higher paid jobs some of the more mechanical or technical jobs that these individuals would have you know working on the ships now they're incentivized to say hey i don't want to do this i'd rather find jobs back on land and because of vaccination regulations or because of um, quarantine issues or just because the boats are sitting at sea, not moving, some of these people are just stuck. And I think what we're going to see is, and I was reading this, that we're going to have major labor shortages. Um, and by 2025, I don't know who's going to be working on these boats. And I just want to add one other point is, look at up. We talked about the profitability that these carriers have. We talk about the, this is all over the news. How much leverage do you think the people working at the ports have? Well, let's add another issue here. Come June or I think it's July, their contracts are up. In the history of the world, whenever you have these union contract negotiations, it's always dicey. Now you take in to consideration the leverage they have. And they're not just fighting for wages and benefits. They are very scared about all the automation coming into this this industry. So mm-hmm. that is a big part of their their negotiation or their, their pain point that they're talking about. If they strike July, they strike two or three weeks or four weeks into the critical back to school and holiday season. We won't even have toilet paper in our houses. 
forget like uh, cashmere sweaters. Mm-hmm. What percentage likelihood do you put that at? I think there's going to be a lot of singing and dancing around this topic. And I think I, I, I find it. I, I from from my understanding, the, the trade organizations and the lobbyist groups and those that are responsible for negotiating on this, they're, they're already having conversations. I don't think it's going to be easy. I don't think it's going to be smooth. I hope that it's it's if, if there was any type of strikes or anything, it's a couple days just to show, a, you know, uh, yeah, just as a negotiating play. Yeah. Um, Because everyone knows how critical this and how detrimental this could be to the overall economy. I mean, this could be very, very dangerous. But it's going to impact prices. Uh, That was what I was about to get at. In all likelihood, the the brands and uh, the the ports, they acknowledge that the chain reaction from a strike, that the workers do hold uh, a lot of leverage here and that they're going to have to negotiate. They're going to give into some of labor's demand uh, demands, increase, um, increase compensation. And that's going to get passed along to the consumers. Yeah, I think the other thing that a lot of companies did in 2021 is they they booked a lot of these expenses as one-time expenses. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they looked at this freight expense or they looked at X, Y, and Z as, okay, this is extraordinary costs. This is not really going, we're not going to count this. We're not going to attribute this to our FOB. But, you know, you look at Amazon and I, I think the number was something like from, from 2019 to 2020 or 2019 to 2021, they spent like, $61 billion or 61% more on logistics costs. So you remember when they they all of a sudden added, what was it, nine ninety nine? if you wanted to buy something from Whole Foods and ship it to your house and people really got, got upset about this? The mm-hmm. notion is that shipping is free is, is, is false. See what Amazon changed the game on last mile. For the, for the most part, before Amazon, you would add $9.99 or $7.99 to your shopping cart. You would pay for delivery. Yep. It was actually a profit center for a lot of companies. Amazon came into the game, and they made shipping a competitive advantage. They made it part of the, sh- the consumer experience. And, and the they expectation. absorbed all of that cost. Yeah. Which in turn made everyone else now from a profit center, they turned it into a cost center. Now everyone is realizing they can no longer fulfill same day, next day, two day, whatever for free because it's, it's going up, 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 up. So, okay, Amazon can absorb $60 billion or whatever, but can all of these companies absorb containers that were 5,000 to 20,000, you know, mil- well, how many companies, Home Depot or this one, chartering their own ships, chartering their own planes to get goods in? This cannot be an, an ordinary cost, cost course of business this has to be an extraordinary you know act but it's not going away that's the problem Matt. It, it, the experts are saying I, i've spoken to two ceos at major freight forwarders and they're saying not only is it not going to soften they think it's going to prices will continue to go up in 2022 into 2023 this is going to be headwinds for the foreseeable future are we going to see any de- that impact demand because it feels like demand's been relatively in- inelastic can brands keep on raising their prices and consumers keep on paying for them, right? I mean, at some point, it, it, and people were expecting something different. They're expecting that that um, the economy was at, at the the 
inception of the pandemic, everyone, the economy seemed to be the, the sky seemed to be falling. People were worried about jobs, about income, but income didn't really suffer for a lot of people. Right. And, and consumer appetite didn't really suffer. At some point, people can't can't keep on can't keep up with the price increases. It's got to impact demand at some point. There's an old saying, the, the, the solution for high prices is high prices. I, I, I think yeah. ultimately, ultimately what's going to happen is how you solve the shipping problem is you have a decrease in demand. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to, that's going to be great for congestion, but it's not great for consumer purchases and the, the people that are supplying products to, to, you know, that are making these products. It's, it's, it, this is a very basic supply and demand in an equation right here. And the issue is the people that are controlling this, as we said, it, because there's such consolidation, whether it's in the railroads, whether it's in the shipping, these major shipping companies, that they right now want to, want to ride this wave until the absolute end. But I think I am, I'm very bearish on the economy in general. Now, I'm not an economist by trade. I may, may have a degree in it, but I foresee massive inflation, which you quoted, rising interest rates, which will impact the, the housing market. You know, when you have people spending 20, 30% more, how is rent in New York 30% more than it was uh, in 2019? It's people crazy. are leaving New York, yeah. okay? You have people buying watches for you know, 4X what it was worth. You know what I mean? You got people spending stupid money on these NFTs and all this. Sh- like, there's just all this new money that came into the market and people are spending, 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 spending. But when there's yeah. a correction, what happens when the stock market goes to 25000 well, what do you think the factors are that would drive it there? Because all the fat people keep on predicting it and it keeps on not happening. I think it's only a matter of time before it does. I see the stock market going to 40000 and then going to 25000 What do you think is going to drive that? You said essentially at the Fed, any any illusion that the Fed wasn't going to be hiking interest rates, I think, was was out the window today. It was already pretty much out the window on, on last month's inflation numbers. With today's and, and uh, I think zero hedge quote to say the last time that inflation was at this level, interest rates were eleven and a half percent. It's insane, right? So I mean, I, I guess that's that's what we can expect that there's going we're going to see a hike in interest rates. We're going to see money siphoned out of the system, a little quantitative tightening, as I uh, discussed a couple weeks ago with with um, Tobias. He slip on uh, on the pod um, and. Uh, the that's going to put you know that's going to be strangling the economy in some degree, but you still got all this money that is floating around. So you're going to have, I guess, what you could call stagflation, where with rising prices, but a tougher, um, uh, a tougher, a tougher interest rate environment, where it's going to be harder to spur new economic activity. Well, I think that there's a few things, and right now, and, and I'm sure there's people that are more um, educated on this than I am. But right now, as an employer, it's very hard to hire. First of all, the demand of the employee is, is, is out of control. They want to work when they want to work, where they want to work, what they want to do, how they want to do it, whatever. But I understand it, you know. Um, and they want, they're able to get more money, 10%, 20%, 30%. And they'll just hop, 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 hop. At some point, as companies, and they're having to pay this to bring the talent in. But if, if, if business slows down, Costs continue to go up. The cost of borrowing money goes up. The hiring is going to slow. If hiring slows and people start losing their jobs or they can't get their jobs, then they're going to a have to take jobs that maybe they don't want to have. They're going to be less. They could be less um, <laughs> demanding. Um, the other thing that I think is going to happen is a lot of this. Look, look at the SPAC. 
look, look at the whole SPAC community. Look how much money was put into that and how quickly that, that is proving to be a failed a business model. You know, there was a great article a couple of weeks ago, whether it was in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, talking about the majority of these have been unsuccessful. They've raised a ton of money. Boom. I also think what you're going to see is, and you brought this up, let's just talk about the DTC community for a little bit. And yeah. let's use that as a micro example of a macro issue is that the overvaluation of some of these companies. So you look at Peloton overnight in the pandemic, it went like this, and now it's like that. People Which, now people are getting rich, but do this, does the bubble burst on all of these things? Are you think? Do you think Peloton is the canary in the coal mine? Is that the indicator? That is that that the leading indicator that a lot of other companies that had demand dragged forward because of the pandemic and that that thought that they were such geniuses and no, you're just experiencing unique demand due to unique circumstances and, and then uh, there uh, re- get smacked in the face by reality. Do you think that's going to repeat itself? continually for a number of other direct-to-consumer yeah, brands. I think there was, you know, Lululemon bought Mirror for $500 million. Now, look, the, the individuals involved in Mirror are, are, are going to be okay, but they've cut the, their, their forecast on Mirror. Now, I like that Lululemon bought Mirror. Let, let me emphasize that because I like the boldness in the way that Lululemon is thinking. They're saying we mm-hmm. need to continue to grow our business. We're not going to start a diffusion line. We're not going to go off price. We're not going to open a ton of outlets. Let's try to find a way to cater to our customer at different points throughout their life. So I understand the acquisition of Mirror. But what I'm saying is you got Mirror, you got Tempo, you got Tonal, you got Argata, you got this, 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 this. Everyone's trying to say, let me get a piece of this home action. So the VC community, the investor community rushes it. All these companies have these massive valuations. You got to have 87 rowing machines at your house, Matt? No. <laughs> and, and especially now that you could go outside and run down the block or you could go back to the gym. This, this, I just think there's when people see an opportunity, when money is cheap, when people have a lot of cash, they run into it. So let's talk a little bit about the DTC world. These DTC brands came to be because they said we have a unique competitive advantage. Okay. We are going to cut out wholesale, we're going to cut out brick and mortar retail, we're going to ship directly to the customer, and we're going to be able to provide a superior or a, a product on par with the luxury market at a drastically cheaper price because we don't have all the, uh, of all the costs that the, that the traditional brick and mortar retailer has. Okay, sounds great. And we're more tech savvy and we're gonna use data to better inform how to cater to the customer. Okay, we package that up and we raise all this money on these tech valuations, great. Number one, everyone's a DTC brand. If you're not selling yep. online directly to your customer, you don't exist in some way, right? So now. The idea that, oh, I'm a DTC brand is not really that novel to me. What's concerning to me, and this really got exposed when people started filing for IPOs in 2021, we saw with Allbirds and we saw it with Warby Parker. Both of these companies continue to have great top line growth, but their losses are pretty tremendous. I mean, when you're talking about a company, you know, that's, losing tens upon tens of millions of dollars on a couple hundred million dollars of sales. But but yet Allbirds is work being valued at a billion, a billion seven. I don't remember the exact number when it IPO, but early early on it was talking about, you know, billion seven or whatever. You're talking about a company losing tens of millions of dollars and it's getting a valuation of of, of over a billion dollars. 
individuals getting wealthy, but where are the fundamentals? And what's concerning to me is, you know what they say in their notes? A big part of our plan growth strategy is opening brick and mortar stores. Warby Parker. They want to open hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stores. Wasn't the whole idea about competing with Lexotica and Lenscrafter and all these guys? They don't need to have stores. They don't need that added cost. So they're fueling growth by going back to the old school way of thinking. So my concern is what makes these businesses so different? They're not profitable. They're going to have huge capital um, investments in all these brick and mortar, you know. So again, Wall Street gets all excited. The investors get all excited. But to me, is it a is it a bubble that's going to burst? Is there any DTC first brand that went retail that is having some success at retail? Or is there anyone whose who's, um, brick and mortar stores have been, sorry, brick and mortar? Uh, are there any, any DTC first brands that are having success, that are seeing success with their brick and mortar stores? There might have been a value add. Well, let's go to the beginning. Look at, look at, look at Bonobos. Uh, how do you think they're doing? I haven't been tracking them, but not yeah, well. Well, that's because they have because it's it's Andy Dunn sold this company to Walmart, and you know I, I, I think it got you know I don't want to say too much, but I don't think that was the dream of the brand to, to exit to Walmart. It's continuing to struggle there. Um, I think it's lost a lot of its relevance in the marketplace. The problem is the novel idea is that we're going to be able to sell pants directly to guys and and they and again he wrapped it up and 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 positioned it as his tech you know tech forward company when you speak to the suppliers they're like oh my god the guy had a million different SKUs, every width and length of of pants it's a very time consuming very expensive to buy that merchandise Mm -hmm. what he did that was smart was the showroom concept because he was able to take smaller footprint stores in a a grade locations but have no inventory there so we didn't need to have ten thousand square feet stores you could take a couple thousand square feet and and be everywhere but again i don't think it, it hasn't proved to be overly successful you know the only dtc brands that i know that are making money are some of the smaller ones that have have are super niche and um have a really really healthy ebitda Someone like Bomba Socks does very, very well. Yeah, mm-hmm. those the, that that brand has really crushed it. But they, they they're not in brick and mortar retail. They just really found the space. They have a charitable arm. They've done great marketing. Very smart guys, and credit to them. But and look, I don't want to say that I think Allbirds is a smart company. They're a material innovation company. That's how I look at them. They got a lot of traction with a wool shoe. The problem is how many of those can you sell? They need to diversify their product categories. They're entering into you know more more verticals. I just am concerned, and and I'm trying to bring this back to when you say the economic implosion, is that when these companies have these massive valuations and then they they IPO and you they go the other way, are we overvaluing everything? And it, will there be a correction? And will that that will will that force the market to you know all these people putting money into these stocks or whatever? That's I think it's going to drive it down. This meaning the public stocks of these companies. Yeah, you know, people that had extra capital, you know, all these individuals go on Robinhood and buying stuff all day. You know, they're, they're throwing money into the stock market. There's going to be a reckoning. What does that reckoning look uh, 
what does that reckoning look like when you still have so much money in circulation, right? Because you're going to have some of these companies are going to be exposed like Peloton, right? Okay. To back up, when, when we, we talk about some problems or self-correcting, right? Like the, the, the solution to high prices is high prices. What does that solution look like uh, within the industry in terms of who's going to be left standing, who's going to benefit and who's going to get washed out? So already, you know, if we talk about the entire supply chain, the factories really have nothing left to give. The wholesale community has nothing left to give. The retailers have nothing left to give. We have to pass it on to the consumer. So in the luxury market, it's actually kind of kind of funny as you raise the you raise the prices that they actually wanted more. Yeah. You know, Rolex raises ten percent. Next thing you know, people want you know the Birkins go up. Okay, throw that out. The rich will always be rich. In this super price sensitive market, off price clubs. Stores like that, where you have a T-shirt for six ninety nine, that individual actually doesn't can't go to nine ninety nine. So mm-hmm. the question becomes, how much can you raise the price before you, they're actually locked out of purchasing stuff? And and as you noticed, as you said before, first they're going to feed their families, they're going to pay their rent, they're going to pay their mortgages, they're going to fill up the gas. You know, if, for the individual that makes sixty thousand dollars a year and commutes an hour each way to work. And all of a sudden, his gas bill is at a few extra $100 a month. Their grocery bill is a few hundred dollars more a month. They don't have any discretionary money left to spend on things like clothing and whatnot. So I really see it's it's the middle that's going to be, it's the middle retailers. It's always those, I don't want to name the names and call them out publicly, but anyone that plays in the middle is at the highest risk right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they can't be as nimble and they can't maintain margins like the smaller, uh, the small guys, and they can't benefit from economies of scale um, and and mass ordering or the leverage that they have with with you know with the freight companies and or the manufacturers or suppliers like the big boys. Yeah, it's also you know it's it's trying to think of the right thing to say right now. (laughs) Trying not to to step on any landmines. No, it's it's when we look at, um, I think it's going to be hard for the people that sell seventy nine dollar jeans or forty nine ninety nine jeans to go to sixty nine ninety nine or seventy nine ninety nine. It's 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 a weird price point. You know, that that middle is is always the one that's the J.C. Pennies of the world, the Macy's of the world, the Gaps of the world, the J. Cruz of the world. If you look at that segment, those are always the retailers that they struggled before COVID. And I see them struggling again. Um, they're not super niche. You know, they're not luxury. They're not, you know, the thing about off price, you know, I said I'm concerned about their, 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 their ability to raise price is when times are bad, people need a deal. And people always love a deal when times are good, right? So, so I really like those retailers. I just think for a year or two, they're going to have a hard time maintaining the margin that they had before. But I don't think the TJ, the Rosses, the Burlingtons are necessarily in trouble from a consumer demand perspective. People are going mm-hmm. to go to those stores probably more so if the economy is troubled. It's just that they're going to have a hard time raising prices. It's the one in the middle. It's, it's, it's the average family that says, you know, I can't really spend, I'm not going to buy two extra pairs of jeans at the Gap, or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go to JCPenney's this weekend because I spent money on this or those are the retailers that are very vulnerable. And what are they doing to reinvent themselves? Okay. Yes. Yeezy and Gap is kind of a cool collaboration, but it's the pennies. It's the Coles. You know, when you talk about, you know, Target and Costco and Walmart, first of all, these are best in class retailers. 
They've invested a lot, but they also have grocery there. They have other products there to get people in. That's why they did so well during the pandemic. People like Kohl's and Pennies, they don't have that. So people are not going there every weekend to do their, 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 their ordinary purchases. When they're walking down the aisle, they see something, they pick it up. So I'm worried about some of these other, there's some, there's some retails that I think are highly exposed that, that, could, that could return to, that could start struggling again like they did pre-pandemic. I want to, you know, look into uh, an item on the the advertising and marketing side, right? And as I imagine that you've been uh, been tracking the Apple anti-tracking initiative, um, which has really impacted Facebook marketing, which was if you're looking at if you're telling the story about the rise of, of, of the filling out of the e-commerce ecosystem, the rise of a bunch of these direct to consumer brands, um, the ability to market and and target men direct and target market um, through Facebook ads. Apple took a sledgehammer to that with this anti-tracking initiative. What have you seen from that? How do you think it's going to impact retailers, fashion brands? And, and you know, to what extent do you see um, brands pivoting their marketing dollars and, and where you see where, where do you see them reallocating? So, so there's two things, you know, being part of a very large media company, I, I have a lot of uh, access to Intel on this. And, and this is what makes a, a big media company that has a lot of first party data, very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there could be a return to actually um, people returning so, to some traditional media, because again, they need to know and target certain individuals before they controlled, controlled everything. They did it all through social media and whatnot. But like, as you said, if they can't do the, 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 the targeting uh, and the cost per acquisition goes through, through, through the roof, they're going to have to re- revisit. I think the more important point here is, People must own the relationship with their consumer. They must, they must, they must, they must. They must build their own uh, content strategy. They must build their own database. They must find their own way to, to sell and, and storytell to their customers. So it's, it's everyone is a DTC brand and everyone is going to have to find ways to, to, to build that relationship. And if you don't do that, it's going to be hard. I think, it's a, even before this, the there was increasingly the cost of acquiring customers continue to go up, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the the early players in this this market benefited from being able to acquire a lot of customers. It was it was it was a cool niche idea, but the the consumer acquisition costs go up. You got to figure out the lifetime value of that. So again, people are raising a lot of money, and they're 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 not profitable. You know, I I think we what we're going to see at some point is almost like an authentic brands group of, of DTC brands. I think you're going to see someone come in and say, look, this one's good in socks. This one's good in dress shirts. This one's good in yoga pants. This one's good at this. They don't have the operational know-how. They don't have the scale. And they also don't have the sourcing or the logistics know-how. So someone needs to come in and almost aggregate all these brands together and say, don't lose who you are. But they need like these corporate services. And it'd be interesting to see what type of consolidation happens. Isn't some of that happening? Aren't there some groups trying to roll up a bunch of D2C brands? Yeah, yeah. There's some private private equity firms. That Is, anyone making any pro- Is anyone making any progress there? Um, I know a few individuals that, that are that are they're doing it. And I know, I've, you know, I've had, you know, sub $10 million brands that, you know, throw off a couple million in EBITDA. They've been able to combine a couple of them together, buy some more, buy some more, buy some more. So it, it's mm-hmm. going to be interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's a strategy. It's a, it's a private equity strategy, you know, largely. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Um, what are you seeing in kind of something that's super relevant to our world socially, the kind of high-end streetwear 
world, right? And that uh, over the last few years, it's become commonplace for $1,200 pair of shoes, $800 pair of sweatpants, um, stuff, uh, uh, apparel that was traditionally associated with, you know, urban communities or or skaters or whatnot, you know, got bid up significantly and people willing to spend who have discretionary income want to pay high prices for this stuff. And this has kind of been a continuing trend over the last, let's call it six to eight years. Um, has that tapered off? Has that ramped up? What, what do you forecast for that? I mean, again, I mean, I walked down uh, in NoHo on a Saturday and the line outside kick is like, I'm like, oh my God. Craziness up around the block. I mean, and, and no matter how many drops they do, it doesn't seem to slow. I, I'm not an expert on this per se. I, I it, it kind of rattles my brain that $200 speaker <laughs> that sells for a thousand. But I will tell you, I myself have 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 made a few purchases on StockX and have bought something that at a multiple of what it would have been when it came out of retail. Mm-hmm. I think it's it speaks to. People with with extra money in their pocket, you know, I really don't know if, if having a sneaker that's worth five grand is really what are you going to sell that and send your kids to college someday. I, I don't see that being the case. I think the real smart players in this, again, are the StockX. You know, I, I'll tell you a personal experience, and this has happened to me twice. You buy a shoe, and let's say the shoe would have been $120. So I buy it. I bid for it at like 260 280 by the time they ship it to me with the taxes and the fees or whatever, it's 340 Okay. I get the shoe. doesn't fit. I need a half a size bigger, but you can't return the shoe. You have to sell the shoe back to the community. But you bought it at 280 but what's the bid that you could sell it at? It's like the stock market. Now you sell it at 240 well, What are you going to do? With that stock X, they take their fee again. They take their shipping fee. Next thing you know, I spent three eighty, and then and somehow I lost a hundred dollars, and I don't even have a shoe. StockX has no inventory; they're buying from you. They're validating it. They're shipping it to me. I'm then shipping it back to them. They're validating. They're shipping it to to you again, but they made the spread. Yeah, that's a very good business model. Um, hey, creating marketplaces and creating liquid markets for consumer goods. Made I made a lot of people work the last smart. 10 years. Very, very, very smart. I think the streetwear culture is going to continue to do well. I think that there's going to be, um, you know, we just have to make sure what made Supreme so amazing was the scarcity of the product. They sold, or are they going to become oversaturated? What makes Kit so amazing is the scarcity of the product. You want something. You want, if, if the second people, Again, overproduce, you know, we, we've seen it with the Juicy Couture's and the Von Dutch's of the world, you know, back in the 90s. Just got to be careful that that supply, that supply and demand. You know, a few years ago, you know, in 2017, 2018, you can walk into a Rolex store, any Rolex, anytime you want. Actually, most of us probably, if we had a family friend, we were able to get 20, 30% off. Now, on the gray market, these things are trading at two to three times the retail price. At what point is someone going to say a $10,000 watch is not worth 40000 and is it going to go back down? I don't know, but I don't see how things can be so inflated for so long. 
Yeah, it uh, it it has it's boggled and it's kind of run contrary to everybody's expectations. Um, you see it in the real estate market, as you mentioned, big cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York bleeding off residents, yet continuing to see real estate prices go up. Although I think San Francisco saw a little downward pressure. Um, something that could also create some shakeup in high end and luxury markets that is unique, it, ostensibly unique to New York, but not really because it's going to have more global impact. Is the fashion and sustainability and Social Accountability Act passed recently by New York Governor Kathy Kathy Hochul. And this applies to all global apparel and footwear companies with more than $100 million in yearly revenues that do business in New York. So brands like everything under the LVMH uh, uh, umbrella, Prada, Armani, what have you. And essentially, they need at least a minimum, uh, they need a minimum of 50% of their supply chain to meet certain sustainability and environmental standards that are going to be pretty difficult to meet. Um, This is an issue that you you had brought up. Um, I imagine it's top of mind for your business. Um, what do you think the impact of this new law is going to be? It's going to be pretty significant. And I should also uh, note that in addition to the ESG um, disclosures, there's also a labor side that they're going to have to disclose uh, median employee wages compared to other you know minimum wages and living wages. And I, I think it's going to create a lot of... Um, it's going to set a precedent that could really change the, the fashion industry and a lot of uh, how business is done throughout a lot of the other states. I, I'd like to take a step back and say, what I'm seeing is, you know, we've talked about a lot of headwinds that the industry is facing in terms of rising costs of raw materials, rising costs of logistics costs, you know, maybe costs at, at the employee level. Um, there's a regulatory, there's a lot more regulation and regulatory issues that companies are going to have to deal with. Yeah. So the New York fashion law is one of them. The Uyghur Force Protection Act is a massive issue. So basically, people are going to have to be able to prove when their goods come into the come into this country where the cotton is originating from. Most companies have no visibility beyond their tier tier one suppliers. Mm-hmm. They place an order in a factory, the goods get shipped. They don't go, they don't have visibility into tier two, tier three. I'm talking about down to the mill, down to the gin, down into the yarn, down into the the cotton field. So if those goods get stopped and you don't you don't have the right documentation, those goods are being sent back. And we know those goods have been more, you're buying them at a more expensive price. They're already delayed. So what is losing those sales? In, in you know, that's a problem. You got the New York fashion law. You have the green deal in Europe, which is, which is forcing people, all of this is forcing people to have transparency and traceability through their supply chain. It's no longer, I, I'll do it. I'm going to put a marketing tag on it. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, 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 a, it's a point of differentiation. Governments are stepping in right now and saying, we're not going to let you guys self-regulate this. You guys can't figure this out as an industry. Everyone's going to need to figure this out. The fashion industry is very late to, to be, especially America. Europe is much more progressive in this. Mm-hmm. What tends to happen, and I was talking to a law firm two days ago that specializes in, in, in customs, uh, and, and, and uh, trade and whatnot, is that most people don't take this stuff seriously until their goods literally get stopped at the port. People yeah. are not going to take this seriously until this is like, if they're going to have what? I, I mean, it's it's going to take, I was reading somewhere, you know, if they pass the bill in the spring, companies will have um, like 18 months in order to uh, meet the, the, to disclose, you know, the, the necessary information. I don't think people are thinking about this. They're going to wait to the spring till it gets signed and and they'll wait to the very last minute. They're not we're not a progressive industry. We're a mm-hmm. reactive industry. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it seems like, and that tracks back to a lot of the issues we discussed earlier in terms of inventory ordering and projections and whatnot, and people are really, and what is driving that? Is that um, employees, let's call it, you've got a, a head of, a, you know, a, a, a chief merchandising officer or, or a worker who doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to float the bad news up to the CEO that, hey, I think that we're probably, you know, we're, we're off the mark here anticipating that demand is going to stay at this level. So and not, you know, thinking that that's going to impact their position internally. Um, is it founders, you know, of these D2C brands who don't want to answer to their board and their investors? What what is what is throwing people off in being so reactive instead of forward thinking in terms of, you know, how these, these seemingly very, uh, you know, the, these these issues that are right in front of everybody's face, uh, these issues that are right in front of everybody's face don't get acknowledged until it's already too late. So, you know, change is very hard. Uh, that's not, um, you know, I gave a speech last year that said nine out of 10 people that go under the knife for heart surgery that are told, told after surgery that if you don't change your lifestyle, what you eat, how you exercise, you have a chance of dying or will have to undergo surgery again. Nine out of 10 of them end up back in the hospital. Now, if you tell someone that that is about to die, that if, if they don't make significant life changes, um, they're unable to change. Um, what's, what's the chance that we're going to make tweaks to our, to our businesses or other aspects of, of our life? And I give that extreme example because that's as extreme as it gets is your, your actual life. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, they, they think short term, they sit on the boards of these companies or they're, you know, they're sitting around. They're like, how do we, how do we make, how do we hit the quarter? Uh, well, how do we have quick, quick returns to our shareholders? And for a lot of them, they're stubborn. Oh, this is how we've been doing it. You know, the famous, this is how we do it or how we have done it. Um, which is why you see a new breed of companies come in and disrupt any market. You know, I've given this example many, many times. Power Records and Virgin didn't come up with the MB3. It was Apple and Spotify and Pandora yeah. and the rock the industry. A Walmart and Target could have been Amazon, right? But Amazon came in and disrupted the industry. So I think for the most part, you know, going back to Allbirds, they said, hey, we're going to make ESG a, a, pillar, a pillar of our business. We're going to focus on DTC. So I, I don't want to knock them. I, I, before I was exposing the maybe the hype and the overvaluation of some of these DTC brands, but these are the type of companies that are able to be more progressive and 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 make changes quicker. When you speak to a lot of the supply chain tech companies or the retail tech companies, they say it's very hard when you go into these legacy brick and mortar retailers to implement tech because it's so siloed. The decision making process is so long, and I think that's 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 the problem. Um, I think that everyone is realizing now that um, ESG is essential to, to everyone's business. Wall Street is 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 putting metrics against this. Executive compensation is is being uh, earmarked against this. Uh, you have a new cons- breed of consumer, this old Gen Z. They vote with their values, and, and they it, it's you know someone said to me recently, is it is it marketing? Is it dollars? Is it good business? I said, look, I don't think there's like this ethical awakening that most people, you know, they had. They woke up, they woke up all of a sudden. They said, oh, you know, I want, I want, I want to save the planet. I think sustainability is good business. You know why? Because if your customer is going to want this and is demanding it, and if you don't have it, then by default, you're going to not be able to service them. You can't make money then. So 
whether you think you're saving the rainforest or you're trying to have the most profit possible, to me, they're hand in hand right now. Also, um, there's major 2030 commitments, you know, that all of these companies are, are making public statements saying, this is our road to 2030. This is what we're planning to do. A lot of it's 2025, 2030. Now they are being held accountable. So now they're going to have to figure out how to do this. This is what we're going to do on the labor side, on the carbon neutrality side, on our footprint, on our raw material. So there's like, you know, you look at the UN, there's 17, 17 points there. But um, this is only going to become more and more important. I think the New York fashion law is really a revolutionary uh, piece of legislation if it passes. Um, I think it's, it's following like what's being done in Europe. Um, and I think we should expect more of this, more of this to, to happen. So right now, as we as we stand here, we're facing all of these supply chain issues. So many of them have materialized and your your average. How does it impact your average person? Right. Per the, the Wall Street Journal story, you've got coffee shops and Starbucks is that literally are sending their employees to uh, to uh, to, to Bevmo to go get cups because they can't get cups through their own supply suppliers. You've got people ordering couches and um, taking it six months to get a couch. How is this all going to shake out? How does this get solved? What can companies do? Can't what can uh, politicians do to solve this? And and what's your best case rosy? What's your rosiest best case scenario for all this? It's a really great great question, and I think I think it takes. I think the solution will actually be an economic downturn. So let me elaborate a little bit on that. I went to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I'm 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 out here in LA for for, for a few weeks and they were closed. One o'clock, they were closed. I went upstairs and I asked uh, one of the receptionists, I said, how was Starbucks? They had no staff. People don't want to work. You know, we talked about um, people not wanting to take certain jobs because they only want to work remote. Uh, people not wanting to take certain shifts because why would I take the shift if I can make more money taking that shift? I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a reality check that that's going to sweep this nation. People are going to see their 401ks. They're going to see their uh, stock portfolios drastically drop. They're going to see their home values drop. They're going to see a softening in the, in the employment numbers. They're going to see companies cutting, not hiring. And they're going to get, they're going to be humbled a little bit. And, and what's going to happen is they're going to appreciate the job a little bit more. You know, when you hear about a 22-year-old making 100 grand on OnlyFans or TikTok or selling a, a podcast for $10 million, which I hope you do one day, you know. Your, your mouth to God's ears. Um, people think that this is, this is, this is the, the, this is normal and this is, this is, we don't need to work full time. Like they're this gig economy. The gig economy works when everything is booming. And everyone's got money to throw around. So I think, you know, as demand slows down, freight forwarders lower the prices, you know, people will start to take more. I just, I think it unfortunately takes, it's going to take a softening of demand and, and just a, um, a rebalance. And it's, it's probably going to be a painful one. I hope that's not the case, but I don't see really another, another way. And I, so we're going to have some pain. <sighs> 
I, I th- yeah, I, I'm very much a, you know, a believer in creative destruction, both in innovation and in terms of expectation, right? And people have certain expectations, then those expectations get dashed and they recalibrate those expectations. And I think that's, that is a process we're going to have to go through. Um, and it, it does seem like we've, we've got some pain right now in terms of the economy being, uh, you know, the economy ate too much, right? We have indigestion right now. So we're dealing with the indigestion for a moment and things being clogged up. And um, unfortunately, it's going to be solved by a, a fallow period. Let's call it by by starvation, by hunger for uh, for a few that can't be sati- satiated. Um, so, I mean, and I think it's also going to be about displacement and distortion, right? Because in certain, in the past, when recessions came through natural cycles, just about everyone lost, right? The economy as an, the entire economy contracted and everything, essentially everything other than complete hedges like gold moved in concert. What we're going to see now is because there's been so much money injected into the system, for instance, like venture capital funds and early stage funds are sitting on an insane amount of money. If, if there's a bit of a downturn, they're not just going to, they're not just going to not spend that money. They're going to keep on funding companies, right? And that's going to keep on generating some, some activity and velocity in, in the economy. But if you're not in one of those sectors where someone's sitting on a lot of cash that they need to deploy, that's going to be painful. If you're, if you're in a sector that, that uh, is experiencing that, that digestion that inflated too much and doesn't, you know, doesn't have any reason for a soft landing, you're going to see a lot of losers. So I think you're going to see an odd economy of distortions where there may be technical, I don't know if there's even technically going to be a recession, but there is going to be a lot of pain, but it's not going to be pain for everybody. So, and, it, and it's going to be even, it's going to be even more painful because with all that money floating around, those who are sitting in front of those dollars and and who are kind of staying, you know, kind of riding that wave, they're going to dra- keep on dragging up a lot of prices while your top line goes down. So you better be on the side of the winners here. It's you're going to keep on diverging and, and bifurcating here, and the winners are going to keep on winning at a higher, you know, at, at a higher scale and higher scope, and for it's going to be even more painful for the losers. And I, I know that's. That is a pretty pessimist. Well, in certain ways, that's a very pessimistic outlook. But I think that's what you see when you've got these these stagflation periods. I'm happy you you, you said that because I, I was going to add that I don't think it's, it's a zero sum game. I think that it's it's not everyone to your point is go, going to lose here. You know, the, when you look at the logistics space, I think last year more than twenty billion dollars of investment went into that space, like logistics or logistics tech, which is more than double. This was the first three quarters, more than double the year before. So, mm-hmm. to your point, if you are um, look at Flexport. They just raised a billion dollars this week at an $8 Flexport's billion dollar valuation. Nice. So yeah. not everyone, to your point, is going to be a loser here. I, I just, I, 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 to your point, I think this, we're going to see some stagnation. I think that people that bought real estate at a, a super elevated price may, maybe they regret it. Maybe they won't. They may not be able to make, it's not that they may lose, they just may not be able to make the returns that they thought they were going to make. Oh, I bought it at 30% premium. Not everyone's going to buy. The story of I bought the apartment in New York City for 70 grand and now it's 10 million. I don't think we're mm-hmm. going to see that in our lifetime. Maybe you bought the apartment for a million three and in 10 years it's worth a million five. Now that may not be bad, but that's not what we all want. We want to buy for a million five and it's worth three. And it's not what we've seen in the, this first phase of the 21st century. You know, I think that at now, 2022, we can kind of we, we have two decades of this century to look back on. And it almost that those two decades almost perfectly track with the digitization with digitization and globalization. Right. So very unique period. And we've seen 
uh, we've seen unforeseen uh, appreciation in certain assets, um, particularly in, you know, in in coastal cosmopolitan markets like you and I live in and in the real estate market. And as I was talking about this with some friends this week, it's like when we were kids, you know, there were only a couple big real estate brokers around town. Right. You, you saw the people with the big signs and those were the only there were only a handful of real estate brokers making big coin. There weren't there wasn't this big class of semi successful real estate brokers who all but who weren't the top the, the tier one and the, the A list, but still made a very good living. And now because of the rise in real estate in L.A. and New York over the past 20 years, you got you just had you didn't have to be that good. If you're a real estate broker, you just sat there. You could sit in front you the same amount of work you were doing for one third or one half the commission back your your counterpart was doing for in nineteen ninety seven was what you know a b a b b plus level uh, tier two real estate broker was making in in two thousand eighteen. I mean they were making three times as much doing the same amount of work, same amount of transactions, or maybe more transactions because more people were buying and selling because of the inflation. Um, so yeah, I think those who are operating from an inflated basis their cost basis could be in anything right with some of these direct to consumer brands that we're talking about <clears throat> their cost basis or their 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 basis for projections is based on art uh, you know already high um, um demand and revenue and sales that they experienced over the past seven to ten years and they've built that into their cost structure into their 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 apparatus right and so they may be in for a rude awakening those who are truly innovating though right those who are, who have who are not stuck, uh, who are not coming from a, a nearly saturated basis and are able to innovate are going to be able to grab all those dollars floating around that are searching for yield and, and having a tough time finding it. We have, let, let, let's put a little asterisk there. When you said they're in for a rude awakening, how rich is Foley? How much stock does <laughs> yeah. he have in Peloton even after all of this? Yep. Yeah. So, so, the owners of these brands, once they IPO, they're still doing very, very well. Like you said, it, 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 it's an extreme, you know, it, it, some of the early stage investors going to do very, very well. Um, yeah. I'm talking about the people that bought the stock, you know, a couple days into it. Or the employees that took that came on late after a couple rounds at a higher basis for their stock options. And now right? the, and so, the stock is actually worth less. The, the, strike, yeah. the, the strike price is worth less than the stock is trading at. I, we all have friends that have, Join companies and have, have been no enticed by by options that are worth nothing. So everyone, we all hear the stories of, of of the riches. We don't we don't hear the stories of all of all the failures. I mean that would yeah. be um that would be interesting. I, I will just you know leave with for for someone that's that's in the supply chain, which is an extremely unsexy business. This has been a really exciting time. Yeah. Because you know I I spent my early part of my career spending months at a time in Pakistan and Bangladesh and India. And I really loved it. And every and, and, and but no one really wanted, no one wanted to talk about it. You know, what do you do? What do you mean to go to these factories, blah, blah, blah. And every, all the conversations I had was I need 20 cents less on this gene. I need 10 cents less. I would negotiate in rupees. It was a very thankless job. You're two days late, air the goods. If I air the goods, I made nothing. I Now for the first time, the chief supply chain officer, it could be your next CEO because supply chain and sourcing and logistics is boardroom conversation. And you have to think it's also, it's not just back office because it's interfacing with the consumer. Sustainability, supply chain and sourcing. Logistics, supply chain and sourcing. So all of these, you know, you talk about drops and streetwear collections and all that. If you don't have the product, 
what, what are you what are you dropping? What are you what are you selling? So yeah. I don't think the runway show or or the, the the great marketing campaign is what's going to make or break a brand anymore. It's going to be the supply chain where the money is made and lost. And yeah, you could always have these small, obscure, contemporary brands that that do a few million dollars, or ten or twenty million. But look at the the, the, the volume players in in this this world. Aggregate them together, and that's what we have to look at. But I love that when I open the New York Times or you know you talk about these articles you're reading. It, it, for finally, I think people are understanding the importance of this. There's massive investment going into this. It's a very analog business. There's a lot of digitalization going in. You saw the Flexport, how they're di- disrupting a, an industry that for, the, for, the, for a long time was just a, a few players. Great to see the work they're doing over there. So I do think this is going to be one of those categories that you mentioned that there's going to be disruption, there's going to be growth, there's going to be opportunity, which I, this is why I love what I'm doing. I think it's going to be challenging because you're going to be working with a lot of companies that are trying to figure figure out their their path forward. But um, with all that, I know I do come off a little pessimistic, but I do think there is opportunities for those that are willing to be bold and disruptive um, and take chances. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Eddie, obviously, one consideration with inflation is the price of of raw materials and inputs. Those, uh, as you're going to describe to us in a second, have gone up considerably. Can you kind of give us some specifics and an idea of just how much? Because this does seem to be, um, uh, obviously, raw materials fluctuate in price throughout the years, but uh, a really unique scale and degree of increase as of uh, as of recent. And that, that's a good question. And I think it's it's reason for the industry to be concerned and also for consumers to be concerned uh, as it pertains to price increases on their everyday products. You know, just to give you an example, uh, I checked uh, yesterday and cotton was trading at, at $1.20. Last week, it was trading at $1.27. If I go back a year, same week, it was 87 cents. And if I go back two years ago, same week, it's 58 cents. Wow. So you're almost talking about 100% increase. So I took, just, just to give you a little bit more um, of, of a macro overview, if you look at the last five years, the weighted average is about 77, 78 cents, which is a 55% increase to where we are today. So what does this mean? If you're in a home textile business making sheets or making a t-shirt, which is very raw material heavy, you have massive increases to your cost of goods compounded with the other things we talked about earlier, raising you know, uh, logistics costs, uh, increased costs um, in the workforce. This is pretty substantial uh, increase in cost of goods. Let's look at some of what's uh, some of those interferences with uh, the the structural supply chain. I mean, it seems at least it, the reports are that the times um, at anchor and berth for for ships in the LA port have been reduced. I mean, are these bottlenecks beginning to break up a little bit? I mean, what factors are are influencing them in one direction or the other, and what can we anticipate over the next couple of months? So I, I've probably read the same articles that, that you've read that show that some of the, the, the worst times are over and better days are ahead. But, you know, I've had two conversations in the past you know week with CEOs of very substantial logistics companies, and they have a slightly different opinion. From a pricing perspective, prices are not flattening or going down. In fact, they're still going up. And they say, when things do decrease, which it will be because demand goes down, which is a whole other problem in itself, man. But when it does go down, they're like, don't anticipate more than 20, 25%. So if a container was 5,000 a year ago, it went to 20, 25,000. 
Maybe it's only going to go back to 15, 16, 12. It's never going to be at 5,000. So a lot of people that took one-time expenses in 2021 thinking this is a, you know, it's a line item. It will never happen again. Um, bad news. It's, it's, this is the cost of doing business moving mm-hmm. forward. A lot of people need to start considering secondary ports. Are you going into Oakland? Are you going into South Carolina? Are you going into New York? Because not only do you have congestion and price increases, you know, we talked about this before we have a, a potential strike uh, at the LA ports uh, as the union contracts come up in July. Wow. Now I don't have reason to believe that those won't be resolved because that would be a huge issue to our, to our everyday life. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the government does the same thing they do for the, the police and, and, and the teachers that actually forbid them from striking because it could be that severe if, if we can't get good support. But let's say that doesn't happen. Could they posture this? They have more leverage now than ever before. And they're fighting not just for wages and, and benefits. They're fighting for uh, they're fighting against automation. They're worried about the future of their industry and the future of their jobs. So and what about wage in increases? Times, and wage increases, I imagine. Oh, yeah. So in the best of times, these, these contract negotiations are dicey. I would anticipate this. They never had more leverage than they do right now. So again, this is going to cause increase in prices throughout the supply chain. And I imagine political instability across the globe, which uh, uh, obviously is very top of mind in some regions, but I think is being underestimated in other regions is also going to be an impact in the supply chain. Yeah, I think, you know, th- th- what we like to hear and talk about a lot is the, the China-U.S. Uh, tensions. But, you know, I think we've taken for granted for way too long the ability to without much issues, buy products from other countries and get it pretty safely into this country. Mm-hmm. You know, Myanmar is, is in the headlines for the wrong reasons. We had a, a military junta overtake you know, the government. So now brands are kind of stuck because if you continue to do business in this country, you're supporting a military coup. Mm-hmm. If you don't do business in this country, you, you effectively are leaving by, behind the workforce that um, is is helping, you know, it's, it's one of the major industries there. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you die. But the major consensus is to get out of there because the workers aren't getting paid. You have no idea if your goods are going to get out. It's it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Same thing could be said for Ethiopia. You know, earlier this year or le- last year, Biden withdrew three companies from the AGOA agreement. That's the, the free trade agreement uh, between America and these African nations. Um, the most Probably the one of the most important to the fashion industry would be Ethiopia, where a lot of investment has been made. But again, if you have a, a military coup, you have factories have been overrun, things have been burned down. Very concerning. Some some other political instability issues. We saw an assassination of a president in Haiti. We saw no president in Peru for a while. Now, I'm not saying I think Peru is a great place to manufacture. I I would personally have no concerns going there. I have no concerns going to Haiti. But I think that having said all this, when you have a multi um, country supply chain, you know, a multi tiered supply chain matrix, or you're trying to mitigate out of China, all of a sudden you say, oh, let me move to Myanmar. Well, that doesn't seem so, so -hmm. good. Let me move to Vietnam. Well, Vietnam was shut down for half a year last year because of COVID. Well, let me go to all of a sudden you're back in China again. Yeah. Yeah. No, trying to trying to detach from China. It's turning out to be kind of quite a tangled web and give it the the lack of a 
a reasonable direct alternative in terms of capacity pricing and know-how and and just you know pure pure labor muscle and is is really and it's it, we kind of see it how uh, America's economic concerns and strategic concerns continue to work against it in a globalized marketplace. Even beyond China, I mean, we're given the tenuous position that the American economy is in with inflation running rampant like this, we don't want any disruptions to the supply chain, right? So if we're faced with a situation where our strategic interests are aimed in one direction, but we're dealing with the country that is involved in that global supply chain network, as you mentioned, disrupting that relationship is going to impact inflation, um, the ability for American consumers to get goods at a reasonable cost and is really going to, you know, we're, we're going to find ourselves and we are con- are continually finding ourselves in a bind politically there because we, we put ourselves in, in such on such thin ice. Um, speaking of thin ice, some, you know, a number of companies that are involved in uh, whether delivering or financing consumer goods and purchases for the American consumer have found themselves uh, at some uh, found their stock price just absolutely plummeting. Um, and two uh, two sets of companies that kind of see this going in tandem, one would be Affirm and Afterpay, and the other two would be Facebook and Shopify, which we're going to get to in a second. But why don't you tell us a little bit about um, you know, Affirm and Afterpay and where, where they kind of, what, what place they, they hold um, in the American consumer economy and why they've seen such significant drops in stock price over the past year? So... I am not a financial analyst, so I'm going to give you more of a macro overview of, I think, why this is happening. No There's a massive push into the buy now, pay, pay, pay later space between Affirm, Afterpay, Klarner, Sizzle, Quadpay. I mean, it's a land grab right now. Everyone is trying to get into this. There's not a website you go to that um, you don't see these options. Mm-hmm. It's a little scary when people on earning calls are saying they're seeing a big growth of, or an increase in sales due to this, people are financing a $20 blouse. It's a little concerning that people need credit for this per se. Is this another economic bubble that's gonna burst? Are people buying um, things that they can't afford? I don't know. But I think the reason why you've seen such a significant drop off is I think the customer that needs these type of services are starting to get hit hard. Mm -hmm. There was, Rent a center, their CEO, I'm gonna I want to read you this quote uh, that he said recently. The combined effect of significantly reduced government pandemic relief, decades high rates of inflation, and supply chain disruptions impacted our target customers' ability to access and afford durable goods. Here is a, a CEO of an organization that is basically renting products to their consumers. They're renting a couch, $20 a month, a TV. So these are People uh, at the lower end of the, the 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 income bracket, probably the same type of people that need these deferred payment solutions, they're struggling. So again, I said this multiple times, Matt, when you and I talked talk, you know, offline. I looked at 2021 as fool's gold for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. People had amazing years, but I don't know if it was because of strategy or it was just good luck and fortune. People had unprecedented amounts of money in their pocket, not their own money. Mm-hmm. It was you know, not a lot of inventory in the marketplace, which allowed people to sell things for the first time in forever at a much higher sell-through and margin. So everyone looked like a hero. Now we're faced with higher interest rates, inflation through the roof, prices increasing, no stimulus, as the CEO just said. And I think that there's war, you know, is to, to potentially, who knows what's gonna go on in Russia and Ukraine. All these things are just a recipe for what I foresee is a tough second half of this year leading into 2023, especially for the fashion sector. I know people don't necessarily agree with me. So people don't want to agree with me because they don't want to accept the potential bad news. But I just see this happening. Is, is anyone 
finding religion on this? I mean, because it does seem like in terms of in particular Facebook and Shopify, you know, the 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 the, the more gloomy outlook has been priced in. Um, those are two companies that are reflective of the likelihood, uh, the, the, the health of direct to consumer brands. Right. So people are if you're trying if if you have a low level um d2c brand regardless of the product you're using shopify most likely to power your back end and you're using facebook and facebook ads uh for aggregating your audience and reaching customers those two stock the stock price on those two companies has plummeted some people are tracing this back to a change in apple's ios privacy terms and a perspective change in google's privacy terms for its android phones essentially preventing brands from um from tracking consumers across apps or across a variety of consumer activity, making it more difficult for brands that are trying to go direct to the consumer to to reach those audiences, or at least increasing the cost and the cost of CPMs were already going up. So, I mean, that has really tanked the the stock price on Shopify and Facebook, despite the fact that the there's still a lot of brands. I mean, these brands aren't necessarily going to just fold up their tents and go home. Although a lot of them were existing with some pretty thin margins that are now going to get squeezed more tightly. Um, what you've seen, or at least what what you've you know you're starting to see the rumblings of our roll-ups of some brands that are going to start aggregating their market power um, because it's too expensive either one to gather audience directly or two to you know to use general supply chains and they're trying to roll up and, and aggregate their own supply chains oh without a question i mean the ceo of um Aratera, that's one of the companies that um um american eagle mm-hmm. uh, acquired earlier this year the CEO came out and basically said the only way that small to medium sized brands and retailers are going to be able to survive is to join, join forces. You're going to need economies of scale. If you're going to want to compete with Amazon and Walmart. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I definitely agree with you there. And just to piggyback off your DTC comment, I mean, we spoke earlier about the stock prices of some of these companies uh, not doing so well that there is, you know, underneath this, this great marketing play and this, Oh, I'm a tech, I'm a tech business. Really? No, you're, everyone's a DTC consumer. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're actually seeing now that I think the new, the, the next version of this is manufactured to consumer where China's going to have a major advantage in this is you're going to see factories and, and agencies start shipping directly to the customer. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is when, when you look at, at the DTC's growth plans, opening stores yesterday, all birds announced that they're going to get into wholesale. Mm-hmm. So my question to you, Matt is if your strategy is to open retail stores and to wholesale to traditional retailers. What is different in your business or about your business than any other brand that's been around for the last 50 years? You came out of the gate saying you're cutting out the middleman. We're not going to, we don't have the expensive, we don't have the overhead of a traditional brand. We don't need the fancy, you know, Fifth Avenue real estate. We're able to give, you know, better product at cheaper costs and, and pass that margin on that benefit on to the consumer. Mm -hmm. What you're really seeing is no, like you said, they spent tremendous amounts of money to acquire customers, which they're telling the venture community that the lifetime value of these, these customers over time, they're going to make the money Mm -hmm. back. They have to keep feeding that engine. They have to keep acquiring more customers to build top line sales. They're losing money and their path to profitability is to resort to the old retail tactics that hasn't really worked over the past 20 or 30 years. I'm not too excited by this idea. And to me, everyone's a direct-to-consumer brand right now. If you're not, if you don't have an e-commerce play or, or an omni-channel play, you're not in business. 
So tell me, am I missing something here? No, I mean, I think uh, uh, we're, we're, we're looking, the tie, it's likely that the tie is going to wash out a lot of brands, you know, over the next year or two or even on a shorter timeline there. And I mean, I guess the prospects of, uh, and as some people who have been commenting on the, the Apple and Google privacy changes um, have suggested is that new marketplaces are going to have to spring up non Amazon because right this doesn't affect Amazon as much or Amazon ba- or brands that are heavily reliant on Amazon because Amazon's already already aggregating the audience and uh, right. and reaching out and aggregating the customers for you right so okay how do you do that with where with some economies of scale where you know kind of amortizing or at least reducing the costs that uh, have now risen and become too cost prohibitive through um, through Android or Facebook marketplaces um, but without being a slave to Amazon and is are there niche are there prospects for niche marketplaces out there well look at the success of stockx mm-hmm. look at the some of those markets like that there's there's a whole street community that pays a tremendous amount of money I have to tell you I bought shoes three times I, I have no shoes. <laughs> and the only one that has made money is StockX. You buy it for 280 By the time you pay it, it's 320 It arrives. It's half a, a size wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't return it. You have to sell it back on the exchange. You sell it for $40 less, plus the fees, the return. You're you're out $100 plus and you don't even have a product. Who's making that money? StockX. What a brilliant business model. Mm-hmm. You have Farfetch. You have some of these other, to your point, marketplaces that I think have been very successful. But Let's not also forget that Amazon, too, is not without a little bit of, of supply chain pain this past mm-hmm. year. They have taken massive hits on, on the logistics costs. They have built a business by making last mile delivery part of the, the value proposition. And we've just seen prime prices. They're mm-hmm. going up. And we now you notice, you know, I've never been a big, uh, you know, deliver my food to home. I, I still like to go with the cart through the, through, through sure, the aisles. Sure. Originally, I, I went to order something on Whole Foods, and I saw what a seven ninety nine or nine ninety nine shipping cost mm-hmm. that wasn't there a year ago. Yeah. So they want to mask it a little bit and say, "Oh, you're going to have some." Uh, I think they have what a license with the, with the NFL, or there's some, there's some additional features they want to provide. But the reality is, it's like a twenty percent price increase for Amazon. That is a large percentage increase. Yeah. yeah. So they too have to pass this on. They can't ship things to everyone for free. And so that leads me to believe because that that Amazon does have uh, is positioned to have more of a, a longer term view here, and whether a short term um, a short term increase in inputs or supply chain costs without passing it along to the consumer. But this suggests that these are more um, more enduring costs. That these are not transigent, um, and and so I'd imagine that uh, that 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 is Amazon's purview and what is uh, sparking. I mean, they they want to test out the the price elasticity of their service. Are are they going to lose prime members by a pretty significant jump in price? I mean, what, you know, you mentioned the uh, raw materials and whatnot. I mean, political strife and, you know, short-term labor shortages, or let's call it um, more stringent COVID protocols in China that might have affected like uh, uh, labor availability in China. I mean, what are the more enduring in where, where can we, uh, track them uh, what are we tracking back the more enduring increase in supply chain costs that would be of such uh, such significance that would would spur amazon to increase its prices oh for them i think it's almost 100 percent logistics costs mm-hmm. the amount of the amount of people that a the cost of getting the goods into the country b the the labor in the warehouse mm-hmm. getting labor into the warehouse just think the amount of increase 
just how many more drivers they need on the street, mm-hmm. how many more warehouses they need in the country to, to satisfy and fulfill all the packages being, being ordered. And again, if every time, if they, if there are more and more people are buying through Amazon and every day the package becomes more expensive to deliver, their costs are going mm-hmm. up. So it's, it's a lot of it is logistics. Logistics or logistics all and around. They can't. I guess what I, my my question being, they can't buttress that. I mean, they they have no, um, they have no pricing power there, or is it just such a such a complicated? There's there's so many links in that chain that that as a, a handful of those links become more expensive, not even Amazon can can end around them. No, I mean there's 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 a few things. A a lot of the products they're they're selling are third party, right? So sure. they don't control yeah, the yeah. products to be sold on there. The other thing is you've seen some massive retailers in this country charter ships, charter planes to get product into the country. There are solutions that you know grade A retailers and brands can do to make sure the consumers have the product. Mm-hmm. But how can you completely mitigate these these cost pressures? You know, yes, I'm sure they have the best rates available to anybody. Mm -hmm. Amazon has more buying power than anybody, but they're not immune to this. And I don't think they're going to see a lot of pushback, frankly, on, on the prime pricing, because I think it's become such a part of our everyday culture. I mean, we go online, we need something, we hit, we hit purchase. It's something we're going to have to get used to. That's what I'm trying to, to tell everybody. I gave a presentation at a bank yesterday. Don't be fooled. These prices are not going away. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, frankly, I think some of these prices are going to go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think if it, there's any bellwether that tells us this is not transigent, this is not a short term bump, um, it would be the increase in prime prices. And we're seeing a, a, across a, a lot of the economy, uh, brands are brands are testing out consumer sensitivities. Right. Uh, you've got hotels are uh, now it, initially um, as the world opened back up hotel goes and raises its prices, trying to recoup some of its costs lost during the pandemic when people weren't traveling. Um, Amazon going ahead and testing this out. I can't imagine they're, they're going to bleed off too many customers, even with a pretty significant price increase for Prime. Um, so, Eddie, you know, you, I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, I mean, you could look at in the footwear space, um, Hoka, Ugg, Crocs, famous footwear, On, Running, Doc Martin. I mean, the, the list goes on. They've all increased prices more than 20%. Jesus. It's significant. And I just want to, I just want to make one comment just, just to go back on something I said earlier about all birds. I don't want to sound negative on them as a brand. Mm-hmm. I think they have a unique value proposition. They're a, for me, they're a material innovation company. Mm-hmm. You know, they came out with a great shoe. It's unique. It's, it's they're, they're building a brand around sustainability. I don't want to take that away for that. Yeah. I was making more of a macro statement that a lot of these DTC brands have popped up trying to, revolutionize space. Oh, I got a suitcase. What's the difference in the suitcase? At the end of the day, there's nothing different in the suitcase. You're just selling it directly to a customer. Sure. But hey, you have a store on the, the, the corner of whatever in California. You know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. What's really different with your business? Nothing. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Unless you have a, a unique value proposition, something customers really want, you stand for something, and then you have to resonate with this next generation of customers, whether it's sustainability or some type of you know, um, these gen, the, the whole Gen Z is very, um, they've got, you they've got you some yeah. unique, yeah. unique consumer taste, no doubt. And so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it seems, it, it feels to me like you're saying that the market view on some of these 
direct to you know some of the direct to consumer darlings that are great brands but aren't really doing anything particularly innovative when it's viewed as an innovation play as opposed to a branding play and, and a product play I mean, the market takes a bloated view and the markets that the market view and understanding and valuation is going to have to contract it's going to have to to reprice to, to match match reality a little bit better i think there's going to be a pressure that a lot of operators are going to have to deal with that there's going to be a time when they're going to have to figure out how to turn these businesses into profitable endeavors mm-hmm. that it's going to be harder and harder to raise capital. And they're going to, it, it just can't be a marketing game yeah. anymore. They're going to have to work with successful companies. And, and to you say, to your point, it's going to be harder to attract new customers with some of the, the new privacy settings and advertising you know, regulations. I think there's going to be a return to some people advertising with legacy media and whatnot, you know, people are going to have to invest a lot in owning their own data and having a direct conversation with their customer. But, um, I'd be, as money gets tighter, I'd be very interested to see if people are dulling out money the way they were, you know, a couple of years ago to all these DTC brands at the, these crazy valuations. No doubt, no doubt. It will be a more challenging playing field for uh, the direct-to-consumer brands, uh, merchandisers, anyone anyone who's looking to just fire up a drop shipping play. Um, not going to be as easy as it once was, but um, simultaneously, we, we all know, you know there's still a lot of money floating out there. We know that consumer tastes and habits now expect um, uh, a direct relationship with, with brands. Um, so, there's, you know, like a lot of other sectors of the economy, there's going to be, uh, a, a, we're just going to be carving up winners and losers with a little more particularity as opposed to the entire space plunging um eddie and yeah, we've covered a lot of ground to say the least anything else that would be interesting to our our listeners in terms of supply chain things that affect the the purchases they make and the brands that they interact with on a day-to-day basis i guess my only cl- closing remarks matt would be is i know um a lot of the comments I made may have come come across as, as negative or pessimistic <laughs> or maybe for some people just realistic, sure. you know, it's all in how you perceive it. But I will say that, and I can only speak on behalf of really the fashion industry because that's, that's what I'm most comfortable speaking about. It's a resilient industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not here. We're not naked right now. Yeah. And I highly doubt we're going to be naked uh, a year from now or 10 years from now. Um, there may be different players um, like any industry, you know, tower records didn't, invent the mv3 player yeah nor nor emergent you know it was apple and it was pandora and spotify i think we're going to see a very different landscape in five to ten years that's not necessarily a bad thing it's an opportunity for innovative companies young entrepreneurs people to really change it up um i that is that is an important takeaway I, i don't think it's all negative i just think that you take the logistical headwinds you take the pricing pressures you take the political instability you have a lot more regulations coming into play. The Uyghur Force Protection Act, the New York Fashion Act. You just, this is all these ESG metrics, the, the, the road to 2030. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Green Deal in Europe. When you just take all this together, it seems like it's an industry under siege. It's like, how much more can we take? Yeah. We're already very troubled. We're already a razor thin um, industry. If you look at 2019, when the stock market was doing great, a lot of these retailers were not having such great you know performances because it's a very difficult mm-hmm. industry. But I'm confident that there will be winners in this. Like you said, it's not an all or nothing proposition. And I'm excited to see, you know, new blood and new investment. Because this has become so, so such front page media, a lot of money is being invested in this. I think in 2021, it was something like 
in the first three quarters, more than double the amount was invested in logistics than the year before. Mm. So for the first time in a long time, supply chain and logistics is getting the, the credit and the importance it needs, becoming boardroom conversation. Hey, we're having a conversation about it right no now. Doubt. And I think you're going to see a lot of people um, choosing this as professions and careers. You're going to see a lot of uh, companies investing in this. So I'm really excited to see how this shakes up over the next, uh, you know, you know, several years. No doubt. And if we look back on it, you know, from a historical perspective, uh, Peter Thiel, love him or hate him, always an interesting commentator. And he said that 2020 was the first year of the 21st century. Interesting perspective, particularly as pertains to the supply chain, because, hey, very outdated system now that that has been strung along for 10, 20 years based on uh, prior standards and guidelines now being updated for the 21st century in a globalized and digi- digitized world. And uh, Edward Hertzman had skated. He skated to where the puck was going to be and got ahead of this issue. Uh, Edward, congratulations on all the success so far with the Sourcing Journal. Um, and thank you for joining us as always. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on digital and social? So you guys could uh, check out sourcingjournal.com. You could find me on LinkedIn at Edward Hertzman, on Instagram at uh, Edward Hertzman as well. Shoot me a note. Love to uh, connect. And uh, if you agree, disagree, uh, I love to hear it all. <laughs> always, always, you know, always, always looking to learn and hear new perspectives uh, on the topics we talked about today. And that's what we're trying to do here at The Prevailing Narrative, bring you those new, new perspectives. So, Edward, thank you once again. Everybody, have a great week. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.